Welcome in, everyone, and welcome to 2022. Uh, this is State of the Family Courts, and I am your host, Mark Reel. Um, thank you, everyone. We're coming up on about our 30th episode here, uh, but um, we're in the new year. Um, we've been going for about six months now, and um, with the new year brings an exciting opportunity in the equal and shared parenting community. We are going to be back in the state houses, back talking to our elected officials, and we're coming off a banner year in 2021, six states passing laws, improving their custody laws in their states, improving their family courts. Uh, so obviously we're hoping to build off of that momentum. In that vein, um, I've been getting a lot of questions lately about what exactly we are going to um, or what exactly you need to know uh, about your states, about how laws get passed, what we're looking for in laws. And so tonight we put together a special episode. Uh, over the past year, I've talked to attorneys from all over the country that have been involved in successfully creating change in their states. So tonight we've compiled the best clips um, from David Passar out here in California, Connie Reguli in Tennessee, Jeff Miller in Missouri, and Brian Vandiver in Arkansas. And uh, we've compiled the clips of them talking about different aspects of the legislative process. Uh, so I'm really excited for that. Um, so we have a video set up to go. We'll do a little bit of housekeeping before we get into that. Um, we do have an exciting January and February planned. Uh, we got Indiana, we got Georgia, we have a parental alienation expert, um, we have Kansas, we have Georgia, or we have uh, uh, South Carolina. So we have a lot of the states we haven't hit on that are going to be coming up and a lot of really, really great topics. Um, but now we'll turn it over to the video and we will uh, let the experts, some of the most uh most influential and, and most experienced people in the country talk about everything you need to know about what we need in legislation and how we're creating that change. So quick side note, uh, I live in Santa Monica, California, which is like, you know, the bastion of like crazy liberal insanity, you know, home of the homeless, nuclear free war zone, all that good stuff. Um, and so we have a commission on the status of women, which basically doesn't do very much. They, they put out a report and, and they don't have any men on the commission. So I'm like, maybe I should apply. So I apply. And I made a good argument. I mean, I'm a single gay man. I'm a lawyer. I've done lots of domestic violence stuff in the court system. I recognize women. And I've presented men on both sides of the case. One of the politicians in our city council talk, was talking to a friend of mine who said, yeah, he probably would be good. There's not a chance I could vote for him. I would get destroyed on election. You cannot put me on that, on that commission because it's just too politically incorrect. And, and we still live with that. Like even in like the bastion of liberalism, Santa Monica, they're still very hyper aware of the politics of everything. If you're a politician, yeah, one hundred percent. I've had I've had conversations with politicians in even I'm in a little bit more, especially if you go into Southern Riverside County, if you go into Orange County, um, yeah. 
those are either purple or red areas. And they're still hyper aware of the appearance of what could be what could be levied against them if they put their support behind Always. something like equal and shared parenting. Always. Which I think is a shame because, I mean, the reality, I think, from the perspective of somebody that's been doing this for a long time, once we actually get to equal and shared parenting and once that becomes more a norm, we will actually see less fighting in the courts. We will see less damage to the kids because study after study after study has shown it is not the divorce that's actually damaging to the kids. It's not having two households. It's not mommy has a new boyfriend or girlfriend. Daddy has a new boyfriend or girlfriend. It's the fighting between mom and dad that causes the internal angst and anxiety and neuroses in the children because they're dealing with that and they internalize that. They can handle two homes easily. They adapt quickly. Mm -hmm. If it's a peaceful breakup, kids are fine. Well, there's, I think, I think it is actually some of Warren Farrell's studies that it's not, the kids going back and forth is not an issue for them. It actually helps them because they know in a very short period of time, they're going to be with the other parent. They're with one parent and they know in the very near future, they're going to get to see mom. In the very near future, they're going to get to see dad. What's damaging is, is like you said, the fight and then going long periods of time without seeing the other parent. Yeah. Yeah, it's horrible. And, you know, for us as lawyers, like I don't know how much education you're doing of your judges, but that's something we have to educate our judges on. You know, when we file our memorandum of points and authorities, like that's something that we need to be putting in there that, you know, your honor, you need to be aware. Like this is what studies are showing that the two, two, three, three, five, and a three, four is really good for the kids in the long run. And, and the judges, this is where their bias comes in of, well, kids need stability. Not so much, actually. What they really need is consistency, not stability. I know it, it was one of the, let me, let me pull up here and get the bill number. So in 2021, um, you testified um, on the guardian ad litem reform 1315. So one of my biggest issues with the current family court system is I say it's pay to play. Mm. Um, at the end of the day, it's pay to play, whether it be you get slapped with unreasonable supervised visitation, you got to foot that bill, evaluations, therapists, court mm. costs, um, some judges are having you return every three or four weeks to court and it time off work. Yeah. Time off work. And then you're paying several hundred dollars an hour for one of us to be there to represent you. Mm -hmm. Um, so in terms of what, what's your opinion on, we'll, we'll go specifically with guardian ad litem. It's not super common, um, in the areas I practice to have a guardian ad litem or a child's attorney. Um, but, but what, what's your opinion on them and, and what type of change are, do you think would, make those individuals more effective? Um, so a guardian ad litem is supposed to be an independent lawyer that is appointed by the court to help advise the court as to what it ought to do in the best interest of the child, independent from um, the zealous representation that mom's lawyer and dad's lawyer give. So that's that's guardian ad litem. And they, and they you know, gosh, they uh, provide a very valuable role. Um, they're needed. 
you know, um, you know, as attorneys, we, we take an oath to zealously represent our clients, not necessarily the child. And that's where the guardian item comes in. Mm-hmm. Um, now with, you know, with every, with everything, there are, you know, bad apples. And, um, I think the biggest well, focus, that Missouri. yeah, yeah. I, I think the biggest focus for change needs to be on accountability. I have had months go by trying to get in touch with the GAL. Um, and you know, you can call, you can email, you can, you know, if I have to, you know, put a, a, a letter on my formal letterhead and send it out, things have gotten pretty bad. Um, and you know, the reality is, um, the, the guardian item sort of becomes someone that you've kind of got to kind of also have to persuade or, or, or win over. And so it's difficult then to, I don't want to use the word challenge. It's too strong a word, but to seek some type of accountability that says, Hey, I've been calling you for a couple of weeks and I haven't heard back. Um, uh, so I think the biggest change or the, the, the what we're looking or wanting to see is some sort of um, accountability mechanism for them because they provide such a valuable role to the court. Yeah. yeah. And, and so this is the thing. I think my, my piece, specifically how a lot of these third parties are used in the state of California, we operate under the presumption that a lot of times that dad has to prove he's a fit parent. Mm-hmm. And in reality, we need to take a look at it in 99.999% of parents ultimately just want to spend time with their kids and want what's best for their kids. I think if we shifted our thinking to, okay, if there's an actual issue, if there's actual substance abuse, if there's actual domestic violence that we can, we can ascertain from what's been provided. Yeah. Then these professionals may be necessary. They may be needed, but I think a lot of times we pull these professionals in and it just muddies the water. And in my opinion, I think a lot of judges, at least in Southern California, utilize these professionals so they aren't the ones making the ultimate decision. Mm-hmm. They utilize that um, that opinion or that report, whatever they provide, to guide them in their decision making. So the ultimate decision is not on the judge. Uh, yeah, I mean, we have our, our statutes here in Missouri are, are pretty strict in terms of you know if there are allegations of abuse or neglect a guardian litem shall be appointed i mean there's no discretion by the judge they have to do it so i think the fix there again is legislative and and that's why we've you know at afesp we work so hard creating these relationships and tfrm does a great job on outreach and npo with their surveys and whatnot but the the fix the solution to these problems is legislative and so if it is. And, and I think it should be. I mean, if there's no, no one wants a kid going to where they're going to be abused. So if there's abuse or neglect alleged, then absolutely um, a GAL ought to be appointed. But let's look at what it means to allege abuse and neglect. That's where the legislative fix comes in, because the statute of Missouri is so loose on what is required for an abuse of uh, for an allegation of abuse or neglect. For example, it just says if abuse or neglect is alleged, it doesn't say by whom. I've had lawyers allege it but they're not the parents. Um, it doesn't say under oath and it also doesn't say with any type of specificity. So, you know, I had a case once where a lawyer came in and hand wrote, I think, a, am not even going to say a one line motion, a five word motion, motion for GAL, dad abused kid. And the judge's hands are, I mean, the statute says if it's, if it's alleged, you've got to appoint a GAL. So I think, you know, in addition to the accountability we just spoke of, I think we need to look at the underlying statutes and laws and fix those because i think if we had some guideposts on 
abuse and neglect, then at least I can say to my client, well, look, it's not a five word motion. Here's, here's what they're alleging with specificity. So that I can then, I can then, you know, investigate it, challenge it, look into it. I'm just not dealing with some amorphous, well, there's abuse. Yeah. And I think that's, that's another very, very large challenge. Um, it, are these allegations where I think there are a lot of states that have statutes. California is one of them where abuse or domestic violence is defined so broadly that it's next to impossible to defend against these things that could be completely baseless. They could be on based on something you can't really pinpoint what exactly they're trying to say. But all of a sudden, there are all these levers that have to get pulled because there's a domestic violence allegation. There's a child abuse allegation. And the party that's being alleged against, the allegations are so vague, you can't even defend the judge. You're, it, it, as an attorney, even it feels like this. You're basically saying, no, that didn't happen. Yeah. And that's all you can do. Yeah. 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 I mean, now it's a little bit different with, again, we talk about the younger demographic. Along with that younger demographic comes technology. So everyone's walking around now with a, you know, a video camera in their pocket. Um, and so, you know, if that's always running, you, you, you might be able to, you know, negate some of those. Uh, I mean, the, 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 you know, the, the problem is, you know, domestic violence, you know, is real. It occurs. These abuse statutes because of that are necessary. The problem is, on the other hand, as a practical matter, the Adult Abuse Act is one of the most abused statutes in Missouri. So, you know, I mean, there's not even a filing fee for crying out loud, you know, even 20 bucks. Um, and again, that's another legislative fix we're looking at. If there were some type of filing fee, um, right now, it acts as uh, without a filing fee and the clerks are required to help uh, a litigant um, uh, write out the petition yeah. for an order of protection. Um, it becomes, I kind of call it jailhouse justice. I mean, you know, I'll show you, I'll get back at you. Um, and I see it on both sides, both men and women, you know, file these things. Um, the problem is we just, I think, legislatively need to find the balance between, because I've also represented you know, horrible cases of domestic violence where, yeah. you know, mom just, you know, had the pulp beat out of her. So we need the protection and it's real. It occurs. We also, though, need some, you know, protections in terms of, you know, uh, I don't know, a, a $20 filing fee waived if you accompany it with a police report, I think solves some of those problems. Yeah, I think I won't even say one of the most abused in the state of California's mm. family code section 3044. Mm. And there are parties that instead of responding to a divorce or responding to a petition for parent, they file this domestic, sure. they file for domestic violence restraining order. Yeah. Um, and no, no joke. I had one, I had a temporary restraining order that got granted against my client after we had filed for custody. Yeah. Her allegation was that he drove by her house. Mm -hmm. They've been co-parenting separate for 10 years. Mm -hmm. Her allegation was they drove by, he drove by her house. Mm -hmm. And if we'd have been able to respond to that before they granted it, we had work records that showed that he wasn't even in the state made this allegation, but he all of a sudden loses almost a month worth of time mm -hmm. of parenting his children. He couldn't go to his son's football games. Um, so it's, it's one of those things in California, the way the statute's written, it's, it's used as a sword. It's not. Yeah. So, and that's where a temporary order entered at the beginning of the case solves these problems because it reels in the emotion. You know, the first thing I'll say to a client who's filed an order of protection is I'll say, well, the first thing we're going to do is we're going to dismiss that. And their drop, you know, kind of drops. And I said, well, in Missouri, anyways, it's only good for a year, um, 
uh, it can be extended for another year up to two years. But if your kiddo is only three or four, it doesn't, you don't, you don't need an order of protection. You need a, you need a parenting plan. You need a custody order. The problem is, um, orders of protection have no filing fee and you have assistance filling it out. You don't, you don't, you don't have to hire a lawyer for it. That, so that's where that's why it's the go-to thing to do. And in the state of California, it's what's preponderance of the evidence to get right. the five frame order granted. Right. And in the state of California, that creates a presumption for five years that that parent that it's granted against shouldn't have any legal or physical custody. So all of a sudden, I mean, I would say seventy to eighty percent of my clients have either prior to me representing them, yeah. um, had a DVRO granted against them, or we've defended against a domestic violence right. restraining order. But it's it's such a sword that, I mean, like I said, the client who um, he had to, like we had to go in and defend that he drove by. Right. It was a hearing that we were in front of the judge for five minutes and the judge was like, no, this isn't anything. In my head, I'm like, why did you sign off on a temporary restraining order being granted? Because mm -hmm. your name's the one that signed off on this. Right. But that data, all of a sudden, it that was the preparation oh. and multiple witnesses showed up that yeah. day. Everything else, I mean, everybody involved, like lost work, attorneys' oh, yeah. fees, filings, everything. It was probably a two thousand dollar expense to their immediate circle. Yeah. yeah. To to pr disprove this flimsy allegation yeah. that was just signed off on without looking at. Well, it. not not just that. I mean, can you imagine? I know a lot of your viewers don't need to imagine. I'm sure they've experienced it. But coming home from work one day to a sheriff standing there saying, "You've got ten minutes to get your stuff." Uh, it's, well, where am I going to go? Yeah, sheriff, it's not my problem. Uh, and where are you going to go? Buddy's couch, your parents' home. But what about the job that you've got to have your work attire for, or, or whatever, or your tools? Mm -hmm. You know, um, you don't have time to get all the tools in your shop in the garage or something. You know, um, so so. But again, I think what we work towards at, you know, with AFESP is a legislative fix to these. So I think something, some ideas like a filing fee, waive it if there's a police report, um, will help hopefully curb some of. You know, yeah. some of those, some very, of the abuse. It's a very tricky issue. And this is, and, and I've never had, obviously, 3044 in California is something that needs to be changed mm -hmm. because of how it's weaponized and how right. it creates this contention when it's really, in most cases, not actually necessary. It is necessary in some cases. Well, if you can get in early enough, and that's, you know, the, the, the best work I can do is when I can get into a case early enough. When someone comes to me saying, well, I want to file an order of protection. I said, wait a second, let, let me, what, what's going on? Well, he drove by my house. Well, that's not quite enough. What you really need is just let's let's file your divorce or your custody and, and, and deal with it that way. Um, so if you can get in early enough, because what that does is that controls the emotion that controls that I want to get back in him or her, um, you know. Uh, you know, the way you get back is, you know, living your best life. You know? Yeah, that, um, I, and I think that that goes part onto our profession. Yeah. Um, I mean, there are there are several like I know I know in the equal and shared parenting community, uh, there are a lot of individuals who don't don't necessarily like lawyers. Um, and, and I see that every week in the yeah. comments. But um, I, I would say the vast majority of lawyers, when the lawyers go to talk and it's just the two of them um, are like, we really don't need these things. Yeah. Our clients are kind of driving this. Like, yeah. is there middle ground that we can make a deal right now? Yeah. Because I'll tell you this, like the, the happiest that two lawyers that at least personally <laughs> in my experience is like you show up to court on that first day and the two lawyers tell the parties go stand out the other ends of the hallway. You mm -hmm. meet in the middle. And before you even go in in front of the judge, like you're like, Hey, we got this figured out. Yeah. Um, and it may be 
two months from filing to them having yeah. some sort of stability in terms of a custody. Well, right? that, that's just it. Is how do I how do I get stability back in my client's life as soon as possible? And that means a schedule, your kids, uh, you know, financial things straightened around. And that's why. Um, you know, again, these legislative fixes are so important because they do that. Again, there's no point going back to court to get more time with your five-year-old if by the time you get it, they're eight. Uh, and, you know, absent, there are um, um, complex cases, absolutely. But I mean, the majority of cases, it's not rocket science. Um, there's no reason cases should take 18 months minimum. I've seen cases drag out two, three years. There's no reason. There's none. Now with facts, findings, and conclusions, that judge has to file why they made that decision. They have to reason that decision out and they don't want to get, they don't want decisions getting appealed and they definitely don't want them coming back to them with the appellate court having said, you did this wrong. Right, right. Because then it's basically a do over. It's like, what do I have to do? Start over here? So yeah, exactly. Yeah, because yeah. what people don't know is that or I think some people don't understand most of the time the appellate court is not hearing the entire case. Right. It's, it's a legal conclusion that they're saying was the law applied appropriately. And so for them to say, well, the judge didn't apply the law appropriately, go redo this and apply the law appropriately is a slap in that judge's face that they don't want to have. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So, but you know, the findings of fact, again, uh, you've got to know when you walk in there, for instance, let me just say, who takes the child to the dentist? Who does the homework with the child? Who takes the child to soccer practice? Who goes to the games with the child? Who calls the teacher, you know, when, or who does the school call when the child bumps their knee or, you know, gets a boo-boo? Which grandparents are closer to the children? How do you, you know, what are the activities that you like to do with your kids? What do your kids like most about you? I mean, sometimes I ask parents that. What do you think, what is, you know, Johnny like the most about you? What do they, what makes them smile? smile when they see you. So you've got to be prepared to tell that story and photographs, 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 and sometimes videos. I mean, I walked in the, I walk in a courtroom with, and I have my photographs. I send them to, to Kinka or uh, FedEx or our Office Depot. And I have eight by 10 color pictures. I have them page numbered. I put them in a notebook. And so, and I've got all the activities and stuff and I end them up there and ask them. And the judges always go like, you don't have to go to those pictures one at a time. And I'm like, okay, well, we're going to mark them all as an exhibit judge and you can look at them during your lunchtime. But, you know, I, and I'll sometimes pick a specific picture. I'll say, turn to page, you know, 45 and look at that picture. Where were you guys? What were you doing? You have to personify your relationship with your child. I cannot stress that enough. I also tell my clients, I say, look, you own the facts of the case. I don't, I'm just an attorney. I'm here to know the law. I'm here to help you figure out how you get your evidence into court, but you own the facts and you're the one who has to create the facts. Very, very true.
Welcome back, everyone. I am Mark Real Jr., the host here, um, back with Arkansas attorney Brian Vandiver. So um, we have spoken about the best practices, how you guys were able to get in front of legislators, how you were able to educate them. Um, let's let's take a step back and go broader. So walk our viewers through what is the legislative process from a bill being introduced to a bill becoming law in the state of Arkansas? Uh, so in Arkansas, our session, um, we have a legislative session that meets every two years for pol big policy changes. We have a fiscal session that meets on the off year, but uh, it's every odd year that our main session meets. And so uh, after we failed in 2019, we kind of had a two year plan to say, okay, 2021, we're gonna come back. Uh, the first step is getting your bill written in, in advance of uh, far in advance of when the session actually starts. Because if you're writing your bill and getting it filed after the session starts, you're behind the game. You need to have your bill written and ready to go. I would say at least a month, if not two to three months before the session starts. So you can get it filed as quickly as possible on day one. Uh, we were lucky enough to be the 18th bill filed in the Senate. So we were early, we were early in the filings of, of the Senate bills. Um, that does a couple of things. One, that puts you in the, in the first of the lineup for, for bills to be considered, but also that also lets you start educating legislators uh, and other interested parties on what your bill is, is about and what it's going to do. So you have to have a plan many months in advance of when the session actually starts. Once the bill is filed, whether it's in the Senate or the House uh, in Arkansas, it has to go through a committee. Um, fortunately, ours was filed um, in the Senate uh, as a Senate bill. It's where it originated. And uh, Alan Clark, who was our sponsor, is the chair of the Judiciary Committee, fortunately. And so it was assigned to the Judiciary Committee where he championed it through. And that was, um, of course, um, uh, fortuitous for us because we knew that we would have a, a strong advocate in the Judiciary Committee. Um, it, it failed in the Judiciary Committee in the House in 2019, so uh, we were hoping to have it uh, assigned to a different committee in the House, and we did. We, we, we were able to get it. Uh, somehow it was assigned to a, another committee, um, and I'll just say that the Judiciary Committee uh, in the House side in Arkansas has a you know, lawyers involved, and it's much more problematic than uh, than we wanted wanted it to be. So we were able to get into um, the Youth Aging um, uh, Committee, and uh, we had a strong presentation in that committee. We had a lot of dads come in and testify, a lot of professionals uh, come in and testify, veterans. Um, I testified. We had um, a surprising testimony from a therapist that I know and respect, uh, Elizabeth Ruggiero, who's a, a marriage counselor and children's therapist, and she just knocked it out of the park as to why uh, joint custody should be the norm. Uh, and so we had a lot of advocates come and testify. And you have to have that support. You have to have people show up to committee to testify. And because you know the opposition is going to be there, and and we knew who our opposition was um, from the outset. It was the family lawyers primarily, and and the judges that that were opposed to it. 
Um, we did have some family lawyers who had the courage to step up and testify in favor of this bill. Uh, Kevin Hickey and, and Greg Crumpton and and some others who who they they stood up and they did the right thing. And and you have to have lawyers involved who will say this is the right thing. This is what we need to do from a policy standpoint, not what's best for lawyers or family lawyers. Um, and and we had that. And, and you have to have that to combat those who are going to oppose it. Uh, and then you have to have people to say, despite what these judges are telling you, this is what's best for the state. And we had that as well. So um, we had a great presentation in committee. We were able to get it through committee. Uh, there was some pushback uh, that we had to make an amendment. And so when you, whenever you have an amendment process, uh, you have to, it has to go back through committee. Uh, the the one the main part of the amendment was that uh, we were afraid that our bill wouldn't pass if it if the presumption applied to both new cases and existing cases, and so the concession we made was that the presumption part of the new law only applies to new cases um, that have have never had a custody order, um, and, but the other parts of the bill uh, will still apply to modification cases. So we had that um, amendment. We had to go back and get it through committee. We did that. Uh, again, it passed the Senate 33 to 2, passed the House 71, I think, to 16, if I remember correctly, uh, and signed easily by the governor. Um, so that's the process. And then in Arkansas, once uh, a bill is signed, it takes effect 90 days after the end of the session. Um, which the, our end of the session was at the end of April. And so Monday will be the, the day that most laws take effect unless there was a, a bill could have an emergency clause on it, but ours didn't have that. So, Gotcha. Okay. So we got, we got introduction of the bill. You're going to go through either the house or the Senate's committee. Um, and then you're going to go to the floor for a vote in that chamber. That's then right. You go to the other side, you got to get through committee and go to the house there can be amendments and it has to go back and forth get passed around um, ultimately you need both chambers to vote in favor of it it goes to the governor's desk in the state of arkansas uh, 90 days after the session's over it becomes law that's so right that that process is a process that uh that plays out pretty similarly in most states um, that that's going to be the process that a bill is going to have to go through. Um, you mentioned something that I think is, is always a topic of conversation in knowing your enemies. Um, and you cited really two of the three groups that are usually the ones who hardest against a presumption of, of a 50, 50 presumption in family court, the bar associations, the family law attorneys, uh, the judges associations, um, the, the individuals who currently have all the power and discretion. And then a third group you, you routinely see would be domestic violence groups or women's groups that will hop in. We've seen it in states like West Virginia, where National Organization of Women came in and made a huge push um, to mm -hmm. keep that production from coming into play. So for the two that, that you um, mentioned there, the family law attorneys and the judges, how did you guys go about combating those groups that, let's be honest, are more well-funded than the equal and shared parenting groups that are trying to drive this bill through? Well, what we did was uh, our 
sponsors of the bill, Senator Clark, uh, primarily uh, had an open dialogue with any any opponents of the bill. And and he said, look, this is our goal. This is our bill. And um, we're going to pass something. And we we welcome you to help us improve the law. And we are open to any suggestions you have to how we can improve the law. Uh, and and he opened that conversation, had meetings with him, several uh, in-person meetings, uh, Skype meetings with judges, with uh, family law attorneys. Uh, but at the end of the day, uh, they just could not support a rebuttable presumption, um, any rebuttable presumption, because they wanted the discretion to remain with with the judges. And that's just not what what our goal was. And, and we weren't aligned. Uh, so we did take some of the language that they uh, proposed and incorporated it in the final bill. Uh, but uh, at the end of the day, our goal was to have a rebuttable presumption uh, that could only be deviated uh, from with clear and convincing evidence. Uh, and that standard was so, so critical. There was one point where we were having our discussions and, you know, the idea came across. The judges really want us to cave on this clear and convincing evidence to get it done. Do we need to do that? And I said, absolutely not. Um, and others said that as well, because if we cave, then nothing really is going to change. If it's a preponderance of the evidence for, for the viewers that don't understand the burden of proof, a preponderance of the evidence means 50% plus anything else. And the way I describe it is if you have the evidence falling and a feather of evidence falls one way or another, that's preponderance and that decides the case and so to have that feather of evidence fall one way or the other to to make the distinction between custodial parent and non-custodial parent every other weekend is a huge impact and that's why the burden is so important because in arkansas we already had uh in our in our law in other areas of the law the definition for clear and convincing evidence and that means evidence that produces a firm conviction in you that the allegation is true or in another way proof so clear direct weighty and convincing as to enable you to come to a clear conviction of the matter asserted and that's the standard that we should be using in custody cases if we're going to terminate parental rights i mean that's the standard that's required for the state to terminate parental rights right that's the standard they have to meet according to the U.S. Supreme Court. So if it's parent versus parent, why shouldn't we also require that standard to terminate parental rights? And we should. This is not a car wreck case. This is not a this is not a case that uh, a contract case. This is a case that impacts people's lives forever. And I don't do family law, but I've experienced it and uh, I understand it. Yeah. I mean, I've had I've had attorneys who now practice family law that were public defenders that handle P.I. cases. And every single one of them will say the, the most stressful thing is thinking about someone on preponderance of the evidence losing either all or a significant portion of their parental rights. So I, I definitely applaud you for standing firm and standing your ground on that clear and convincing evidence. Um, and explaining that to the viewers and, and only an attorney could write that um, or, or a judge somewhere, I'm sure, uh, in the state of Arkansas uh, decided they wanted to be the one to to define what that meant. 
Well, we hope that uh, other states will follow suit and, and really um, adopt this burden as well because it is a game changer. And um, I think we will see in Arkansas, I don't, I don't know that the number of custody cases will change all that much, but I think that there will be a huge change in the amount of litigation and time that is needlessly spent on whether someone is a fit parent or not on frivolous issues that you shouldn't be fighting about. Um, and I, I hope that's the case. And I really think it will be. I, I, as a practicing family law attorney, my first thought of this is there's almost never settlements prior to the first hearing. If you have a 50, 50 presumption and, and I was trained as a labor and employment attorney, you're a practicing labor and employment attorney. The law is a lot more clear cut and you end up, usually settling. Very few cases actually drag on in that in that area of law because both parties essentially know the small window that the case will eventually fall into. So my right. first thought on these 50-50 is that as an attorney, unless there's a legitimate substance abuse issue, which is serious, unless there's a legitimate domestic violence issue, which is obviously serious, unless there's some issue along those lines, both attorneys are going to go in knowing that, okay, either the parents and us can come to an agreement and tell the judge what we want, or the judge is just going to slap the 50-50 on there. So as an attorney, I think in, in my mind, I think it's going to make it easier to settle early on because the burden is going to be much higher to create something different or, or to drag things out. And that was our goal. That That is our our intended goal. That's our hope to reduce litigation, to encourage settlement earlier through this rebuttable presumption, because as I know, and as others have experienced, the more litigation there is, the deeper the scars are and the harder it is for the parents to heal and, and move past litigation. And if you can take some of that litigation away and settle it uh, earlier rather than later, I think uh, it, it only benefits the children uh, in the long run. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, we've, we've already seen it. I think something that's going to be very compelling, obviously now we're going to get the state of Arkansas here in a couple of years. Statistics are going to start to come out. We've started to see those statistics, and I'm sure you use them in your state, that have started to trickle out from the state of Kentucky, where the number of hearings is down, the number of domestic violence cases is down, um, that, that a lot of times we didn't really talk about in terms of the the enemies to equal and shared parenting, but those domestic violence groups that come and say this is protecting the abusers. And we, we, we're starting to see if we get more and more states on board with this, I have a gut feeling that the statistics are just going to become overwhelming, that it's going to become that tidal wave that two, three years from now, if you're a legislator that does not support this 50-50 presumption, you're, you're going to have that kind of scarlet letter moving forward of you supported discrimination. That's right. That's right. And and that's what it is. This is a this is a civil rights issue, uh, an equality issue, and uh, they are going to be on the wrong side of the issue if they don't support this type of legislation. And so the, the statistics will keep showing uh, that. Uh, we're confident the statistics from Arkansas will show that uh, and we will we will keep fighting the good fight.
So uh, we'll, we'll get back to, to what brought us here today. <laughs> and, and as always, we start out with what's going on at the state level. And we start out with the National Parents Organization scorecard. So um, taking a look at that, the state of Missouri grades out as a C plus, mm-hmm. which is average, maybe a tick above average in terms of, of where it sits compared to the other states. Um, now, there's been a lot of movement and you're obviously someone who's been on the ground and been testifying. So mm-hmm. dating back all the way to 2016, there's been a ton of activity, but maybe not a ton of movement in the state of mm-hmm. Missouri. Do you kind of want to tell the viewers about what, what we've had going on? Sure. Yeah. So first, before I start, big, big, big shout out to NPO. Just some fantastic folks there. And they have done a lot of uh, background work in getting surveys done that uh, we'll be talking about this throughout the weekend, but that have been instrumental in getting the nation's best equal shared parenting law passed in Arkansas. Uh, they did some similar survey work for Missouri as well. So great, great job uh, by our, our, uh, our, our, our team there. Um, Missouri started, um, it's, this will be coming up, will be our eighth year. Um, and it started, so a few years before, I guess around 2014, 15, uh, is when bills started to get filed. Um, 2016 was a bit of a watershed year because that's the year we, we first got into statute terms regarding equal parenting. Mm-hmm. It didn't quite make it into where it needs to be in terms of what we call, um, a rebuttable presumption. And that's what that is, is that is just sort of like a starting place. So, um, you know, if you think of a football game, instead of starting at, you know, in the end zone or at the, you know, anywhere like the 22 yard, 20 yard line or whatnot. Why are we not starting at the 50 yard line? Mm-hmm. You know, so that all began in Missouri in 2016. And what happened in 2016 is a change to the statute. It was uh, 452.556.1. And basically it said that court clerks are required to create a handbook to help parents create a parenting plan. And in so doing, the language was um, they have to create guidelines as to what to include in a parenting plan. And here's the key. In order to maximize to the highest degree the amount of time the child may spend with each parent. Great sounding language. It's just it's just not beefed up Where's in the, the right plus. Yeah, yeah, and in the right part of the statute. I mean, we need something that directs the judiciary to say this isn't a clerk creating guidelines for a handbook. This is the judge saying um, we're starting at 50, 50. Um, now some do, some do. The problem is, um, our counties are, are, you know, if you've got counties uh, here in the St. Louis metro area, you've got a couple of counties divided by the, by the Missouri river. And the problem is you can start with a judge in one County who says we're starting at 50, 50, you can go 20 minutes across the river and get the exact opposite experience. And that just shouldn't be the case because it's a, it's a state law. It needs to be applied consistent, consistently, regardless of the courtroom you're in, the judge you have, the lawyer you have. Um, so that's why we need to give it, a, and, and, and we've been working since 2016 to say, well, now we've got, you know, the basics, the model. Now we've got to give it some teeth and say, here's where you start. Um, and it ought to be that you, you, you shouldn't have to prove you're a good person, mm-hmm. you know? I mean, I hate to compare it to sort of criminal law, but in criminal law, we've often heard, you know, you're you're innocent until proven guilty. You don't have to prove your innocence legally in criminal court. Um, so why is it any different for a parent? Why does a parent have to come in and prove 
I'm a, I'm a fit parent. Mm-hmm. I mean, the presumption, and there's some U.S. Supreme Court cases that say, um, you know, a parent is presumed to be fit. Well, if that's the case, if you're presumed to be fit, then you shouldn't, you shouldn't have to prove that. It should, the burden should be on the, the other side, the parent who believes you're not fit to prove you're not fit. And so that's what, you know, the intent of our work, our lobbying, our, our legislative drafts are to say, you know, no judiciary, you start where they're both fit, they have equal time. If someone is offering why there should not be equal time, well, they've got to come forward and prove it, yeah. you know? Um, otherwise, you shouldn't be spending tens of thousands of dollars and years of time to get that time with your child. I'm fond of saying, you know, there's no point going to court to get more time with your five-year-old if you, if by the time you get it, they turn 18 in three weeks <laughs> or they turn eight or they turn and, 10. And You're I wasting time. Well, one of the things I always use, the viewers always hear me use is when we're, we're creating this change. And obviously there's a group of us here um, this weekend going to be working towards hopefully creating mm-hmm. some change. But the first downs right now, we don't start on that 50 yard line. That's right. And, yeah. and in every single state, we have to continue to work and to get those first downs. In a state like Missouri, there's been a ton of activity, but we saw, I mean, I think it was what ended up being six states last year right. that passed some form of improvement. Yeah. And you kind of mentioned the three prongs we're looking for. We're looking for that rebuttable presumption. We're looking for the burden of proof to rebut that presumption. And then facts, findings, and conclusions if that were, that presumption is rebutted. So there's some accountability. Well, and that's the other part of the change in 2016 that happened is mm-hmm. part of that law said judges have to enter facts, findings, and conclusions of law for their judgments. So they can't just sort of willy nilly say, well, I'm going this way and da, da, da. no, they've, they've got to have, you know, something uh, substantive justifying their order. It also comes after. So, so that's, that's the aspect of the law that happened in 2016. After that law uh, went into effect in August of 2016, there's a very important case that came down in Missouri called Morgan v. Morgan. Mm-hmm. And Justice Page did a terrific job analyzing um, the custodial statutes in Missouri as well as this new law. And she said in her opinion, you know, the intent of the legislature is clear. Joint custody is favored. And look at this language about creating the handbook. It says to maximize the time with each parent. So what we're going to interpret that new law is saying is it ought to start at being equal. The problem is it's just with so many different counties, so many different courts, it's just not been strong enough. And that's why we need to create a follow-up bill like all these other states are now doing. And we've, we've worked with, you know, half dozen, uh, eight or nine different states like Arkansas, uh, like Wisconsin, like Michigan. Um, that's the great thing about, um, volunteering for uh, an organization like Americans for Equal Shared Parenting, even though I'm Canadian. Um, uh, Canadians are for it as well. Um, is we've been able to work with all these different groups, you know, like NPO, like the folks in Arkansas, uh, to draft core quality legislation that's consistent consistent from each state. So we're, we're basically in the process of drafting and, and eventually adopting a uniform statute on equal parenting from the beginning. And, and it's just from the beginning. I get if there's other issues, that's fine. You got to come into court and you've got to prove it. You can't just, you know, make allegations in, 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 a, in a pleading. Because what often happens is, you know, 
gosh, in some of these counties, I practice in about four or five different counties here in Missouri, and they're all about three or four months away from your initial case management conference. Mm -hmm. So someone files their petition for custody or divorce, and you're looking minimum at four months before you get in front of the judge. And even then, that's just a case management. That's not nothing substantive. Might be another two months before you get there on an evidentiary hearing or an evidentiary motion, um, basically a motion for temporary custody. That's six months. If you haven't seen your kid in six months and that kid is three, four, five years old or wherever the age, that is a huge problem. So what, what our attempts are in drafting this legislation is we also need to get an, a temporary order done within the first month. So here's, here's the deal. And this is the standard. It's, and you, you know, it's not, you can still, um, you can still vary it in terms of, even though it's 50, 50, you can achieve that a number of different ways, you know, week on, week off, two days, two days, and then three days over the weekend, um, every other day, if they're a young, young kiddo. Um, so it's not, you know, we're not forcing, you know, some default thing. You can still vary it. We're just saying the default presumption from the beginning is equality. Um, and that's what this country was founded on. All right, guys, I hope you enjoyed uh, a replay of some of our, our greatest hits in terms of legislation and changing our state's laws. Um, next week, we'll be back once again, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 Pacific, um, back with our normal interview. Like I said, we got Georgia, we got Indiana, we got parental alienation, we got South Carolina. So we got a lot of exciting things coming up. Um, thank you all for supporting uh, State of the Family Courts and the Father's Rights Movement in 2021. And I hope this is a jump off to bigger and better things in 2022. We'll see you all next Thursday.